to another episode of MJ's Progress, Not Perfection. Today's guest is Sean Smith. Sean and I met in one of the recovery groups on Facebook. Turns out we have a lot in common, and we look at recovery the same way. We, you know, look at a lot of things the same way. Um, we had different, you know, comings up with family life and drugs we got into and how and why. But at the end of the day, you know, we still have the same kind of passion, which is spreading a message of hope, you know, to help other people, to help them realize that they can get out of their mess just like we did. So I hope uh, you enjoy this Welcome episode. to the show, by the way. Um, how much clean time do you have, Sean? Uh, so I have three years. Um, my clean date is 11 nice. um, So, but that, if you count maintenance, I only have from the 20th of November of 2020. Uh, so I actually cold turkey methadone in a detox center while I was already in recovery. Um, okay. So. Yeah, no, I, I count I count that. I mean, I, I consider recovery as an unmanageability. You know what I mean? Like, you know, because I use cannabis in my recovery. And okay. I, went, I went to a rehab called High Sobriety in, in Los Angeles that taught me how to change my relationship with cannabis. Um, like I don't even wow. smoke it to be honest with you, because that would be too much of an instant thing where instant gratification. And that reminds me of sniffing pills and chugging drinks. So like, I don't do instant, you know, I'll take a capsule in the morning and it'll maintain me through the day. Cause I think better with it. And I take a capsule at night that helps me sleep. Um, but I don't actually smoke, you know, I'd rather just take a capsule and then wait one or two hours for it to settle in. Um, right. so, but, but yeah, man, I, so I totally, I, I agree with methadone being a way to maintenance you. So that, yeah, your recovery date to me is your recovery date. You know, that's the way I feel. Um, what was your drug of choice? Was it heroin? So, um, all right. So people ask me this all the time. Um, my drug of choice, uh, if I were to pick one, yes, it was, it was heroin. Uh, it was heroin. And uh, it was more heroin and more heroin. Um, but if, you know, if I was to be honest with you about it, I would say anything that really took me outside of that, like dealing with my shit, you know, dealing with like all these insecurities and all these problems and all the traumas and all the situations that I wasn't emotionally mature enough to handle anything that just took me outside or anything that made me feel accepted. So, yeah. Like, yeah. I started drinking at 11 and then, but I started using alcohol to escape at 12. You know what I mean? Just because I didn't know how okay. to deal with grief and loss. So, like, when the first person I knew died when I was 12, and I had already been drinking for fun from 11, you know, now I thought I had the answer to fix my problem. And then that that kind of pattern, every time something bad happened, continued for the rest of my teens and my 20s, because I always thought I knew the solution was get fucked up. You know, and then eventually wow. I wasn't even drinking. I was using pills every day so then that was my solution every day you know they always say our problem wasn't drugs and alcohol that was our solution to our problems i just did a live about that story oh yeah (laughs) yeah i talk about that ad nauseum like my listeners are probably tired of hearing me say but it's the truth you know um how long were you in active addiction for so i was in active addiction um i would say well so i started using when i was 14 years old um, I started using with alcohol and smoking weed from time to time and I, you know, it progressed. Uh, but, uh, if I were to say hard drugs, I would say, uh, about 15 years. Um, I'm 41 now. Um, I've been clean for three years from, uh, 
from illicit drugs. And, you know, it's funny, though, because it, for mine it was a slow progress. Like I kind of like went I guess I call it I used to call it like the high school of drugs. because it was like I went from the alcohol and the weed to then I discovered like raves. And so I started doing like ecstasy and like ketamine. And then, you know, I started doing conventions with a friend uh, who ran a horror movie convention all the time. So then I got into the cocaine and I went back to drinking and doing cocaine. Uh, and then um, and then I. I, uh, I, the drinking is what drove, uh, drove my, my ex and my kids away. Um, I lost them because of the dr the drinking. And, um, and so I, you know, had this, uh, this bout with God one day, uh, I tried to, uh, overdose on sleeping pills and a fifth of Evan Williams, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, that was rough. Uh, and so I had this knock, knock down, drag out argument with God one day in a living room of my best friend's house while he was at work. And I was cussing out God and calling him every name in the book and saying like, you know, how could you even exist? If you exist, how could you be such a horrible entity that would let me go through all this shit in my life? You know, all the abuse, the, you know, being molested and, you know, being beat on by my mom's different boyfriends, my mom being an addict and all the woes, you know, like all the shit that I've been through. And, you know, I, I just cussed him out for it. Um, you know, and then it was like, you know what, you don't exist anymore. And just like, I just walked away from him. And, uh, you know, from there, I just, I, I had this fuck it mentality, you know, because I didn't die from those sleeping pills. I just woke up like two days later, like on the couch in a puddle of my own vomit. Um, and my buddy was like, bro, you need to clean that up, man. Like right. good best friend. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> not I always about to throw up, not to, not to throw up right. while you're passed out. <laughs> it's always I'll let right. him the fact that I was out two days straight. Yeah, you right. could have been dead. You know, I was checking your pulse, bro. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he checked my wallet for a pulse. You know, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> what you was your mom like a, what we call a serial monogamous, like where she just like went one relationship to the other to the other. Okay, so uh, it's a little bit of a different story with my mother. Um, and when I say this, um, I say this with complete love. Um, my mother and I, before she passed away, there's been there was forgiveness there. We had made amends, um, and uh, she's a, she was a beautiful person, but she was also broken. Uh, my mom was a heroin addict as well. Um, my mom was a prostitute, and um, so we never had a stable place to live when we were kid when I was a kid. Uh, so I was in and out of different hotel rooms, hiding in closets while she was with John's, um, you know, in and out of cars, sleeping in cars, sleeping at her friends' houses or sugar daddy's houses. Um, you know, so I never knew a stable male figure in my life. And the only male figures I did know in my life used my mother like a piece of trash. Um, and were you like, you were, know, now you grew up, what, East Baltimore? You grew up like in the city? I grew up. I grew up in Southwest Baltimore, uh, okay. in, in Morrill Park. Uh, it's, um, uh, what they call the dirty white boys. Uh, that's where we're from. So, you know, uh, you know, so I grew up out there. Um, I grew up all over Southwest from Pigtown to Lumberyard to Morrill Park to Lansdowne, Arbutus. Um, you name it. I grew up all around there. So, um, that good. 41, man, you look good for 41. I, they, they always say opiates keep you young. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I, when, when I tell somebody I'm 35, yeah, they're like, you're 27. I'm like, opiates, man. <laughs> opiates get me young, I think. Opiates. But you get Absolutely. to a certain point. Absolutely. 
I was talking to somebody about it on an episode, and she's like, yeah, but there's that point where, like, if you don't stop when you're supposed to, you t- you age, like, 15 years overnight. So you, <laughs> we stopped when we had to, or else it would have been real bad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I definitely, I totally agree with that, because I've seen some guys, like, uh, like I said, I work in recovery. I see some guys, like, they'll leave rehab, and then, like, they'll come back, like, a year later, and I'm like, wait. Did you just wait, do are eight you- years of the president? <laughs> right. Like, did I just wake up in a whole nother, another, another, yeah. uh, like what's going on? And it just, you know, it's it, especially nowadays with the fentanyl out there, the fentanyl and the car fentanyl out there is, is eating people alive. It's destroying yeah. people physically so fast. And then of course, like, you know, all the kids love the Molly now and they don't even realize that the Molly, all that is, is really, it's honestly crystal meth amphetamines yeah, because it's not what it used to be back. Like when we were younger, no, none of the drugs are like we used to do when we were younger. They really not. <laughs> like, dude, I've heard that they're putting like fentanyl and like weed around here. I know they're putting it in coke. I know they're putting it in meth around here. Yeah, they press it in pills now. Like they have Xanax pills and bars, and they have presses for like Percocets and Oxy 80s, which just blows my mind because they haven't even made a real Oxy 80 in like 10 years, and in yeah. like 15 years, and like people are like, Nah, you did a real OCs. I'm like, Bro, I'm telling you, that's not real. 2009, <laughs> they stopped making them. That's when. Like, I remember that shit. I was doing them, you know? I remember when they came out with the gel ones and we were all butthurt. Like, <laughs> you know, that's when we all had to switch to 30s. Yeah. <laughs> like, the little yeah. blue joints. Yeah. That, yeah, that was my days. thing, dude. That, I, was, I, I was addicted, but I was addicted to them on a whole different level of I only wanted them. So wow. I was kind of lucky, you know, that I didn't ever want to go to dope. Because I always knew once I do heroin, I'm never going to do the pills again. And I love the pills too much to give them up. So, right. like, I always say that was, like, my first love of my life. You know how you say we have three? I always say that was my first. And right. I had to write a breakup letter and everything to that shit when I went to rehab finally. Because, like, I was one of those one-and-done rehab people, like, knock on some wood. Like, but I went because I wanted to go. I was tired of this. Like, I was exhausted. And I was just like, if I don't go to rehab, I'm going to kill myself straight up like i was trying i was trying at the end i was mixing coke into my perks at the end and my xanax and breaking them up all into one line xanax perks and coke into one line i was trying to go bro and i couldn't so i was like well i guess i gotta do a rehab (laughs) yeah how many rehab stays did you have okay so um i have seven I have seven different rehabs that I went to, um, and one of them I went three times. So really it was 10, 10 altogether, um, and it was a journey. Um, my, my, recovery, my recovery started – I'll tell you exactly when my recovery started. So one of the last runs that I had, real runs that I had, um, it, was a, it was a 10-year run. All right, with me and my ex-girlfriend, I won't say her name because I don't want to break her anonymity. Uh, but she's doing very well now, by the way. Uh, she's getting ready to have a baby. I'm so happy for her and proud of her. Like she's really, she's doing this recovery thing for real. She's a soldier. Um, and uh, but yeah, so we we were living together and uh, two broken people who had been abandoned their whole lives and you know had been you know t- traumatized their whole lives and just found solace in each other. We found peace in each other and we did drugs together and that's how most of drug relationships are and we thought that we couldn't live without one another um and so uh in a depression state i'd been in a depressive state for like the, that past four months where i didn't even want to get out of bed to get the money to get 
high or to even go get high. I just didn't care anymore about anything. That's a, that's a low, low place, like spiritually, you know what I mean? Um, we just like zero fucks given about anything like, you know? Uh, so I went out and I was so desperate, um, that I live by a hospital and I, um, I went into the parking garage and I was like, okay, I'm going to like go by the, the, the pay to park thing. And the first person that I think, and it sounds horrible, but it's my truth. Um, the first person that I can kind of be stronger than and manhandle like an old person or whatever, um, or a woman, I'm just going to like snatch the money out of their hand and run, you know, uh, to go get a pill. And, um, and this old guy comes out with this old lady and, um, and they're walking into the parking, like through the building and in the parking garage. Right. And he's got a patch over his eye. You know what I mean? Um, he's an older guy. He's like probably like 70 or 80 years old. Right. And I'm like easy target. Right. Um, and he gets to the pay to park thing and he puts the, he goes to put the $20 in and I'm nervous. I'd never done anything like this before. I'm like, I, and like, so my inner self is battling myself and I'm like, they're like, Sean, don't do this, dude. Don't do this. Don't, don't do this, dude. You're better than this. These people are innocent. They don't, they, you know what I mean? They're not, they're, they don't, don't make them part of this. But that demon, that addiction was like, man, fuck that. Get this shit. Like, you're going to be sick and you know it. You're already fit. here. Let me give you some bubble guts, bubble guts, bubble guts. And like, it just, that's how it works. And I was just like, okay. And he had the wallet in his hand and I went to grab his wallet. And when I did, he held on to it. He didn't let go. And I wasn't going to put up a real fight. So like, I kind of yanked it like once or twice. And his wife like grabs me by the shoulders and starts screaming, let him go, let him go, let him go. And like, I'd like kind of like, numbed out like you know what i mean like blanked out and then i like like i just kind of froze and like i kind of came back to mentally like like i didn't black out but i came back to mentally and i'm like what the fuck am i doing this is horrible and so like the coward that i am i like let go of the wallet and i ran off you know um and you know i went back to my apartment and i hid and i sat under the covers like just crying about like how much of a piece of shit i was you know and like, you know, of course I, you know, got some money to get dope or whatever later on for my girlfriend. And, you know, two days later I was walking, uh, cause I used to do this little hustle, uh, con things that I used to do to make money. And so I'm walking past the hospital again and the sheriff pulls over and he's like, Hey, you sit on the steps. And I'm like, okay. And I knew, I just, I just knew, you know? And like, he's like, uh, he had a picture, you know, on a, on a, on a, on a piece of loose, well, not loosely paper, but like a piece of like printer paper. And it was my picture of me coming out of the building. And he's like, that's you. And I was like, yeah, it is. And I sat down on the steps right there on the stoop right there on monument street. And, um, and I could have ran this guy was a, this guy was a huge guy. He did not look like he was trying to like, you know, do anything important to like, you know, keep his job. But you know, I just, I was just done. You know, I was just done running. I was done with all the pain. And I was like, you know what? In my head, I was like, you know, I was like, I could go to jail and do this time or do whatever they're going to do for him do to me. And maybe it'll help. You know, that's sad when you'd rather go to jail to feel safe than to be out on the streets. Right. Like, that's kind of it's kind of horrible. Okay. Um, 
but that's where I was in my life, you know? And then I went to jail and, and I did good. I didn't, um, I didn't, you know, cause people get high in jail. Let's be real. Like, you know what I mean? You can get dope Coke, you know, Molly, you can get, uh, Suboxone, you can get whatever half you want. Half the people I talk to get high. The other half don't. It's so funny. Everybody I talk to about jail, I always ask about, you know, what their experience was and half of them said, no, I was still getting high. And then there's the handful like you, they're like, no, I was straight when I was in jail. I was just trying to get out of there. Yeah. And, and I did, I did all the right things. Like when I went in, when I got locked up, um, I don't know if you saw my TikTok, like my, my, uh, journey of, I, I weighed 122 pounds when I got locked up 120. And now mind you right now, I weigh 210. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a whole nother Sean that I added on to me, you know? Um, but I weighed like, you know, 122 pounds. I'm a skinny dope fiend, white boy going into central booking in Baltimore. You know what I mean? Which is like, they call it Bodymore Murderland. That's the that's the nickname. You know, we are literally the trenches down here, and you know, and gang life in the in jails is really huge. And I knew I didn't want to owe anybody anything at all. Um, I'm too pretty and I'm too skinny. There, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. Was your so, hair long then you, too? You, no, so, it wasn't. Thank no, God. Okay, that, <laughs> give him something yeah. to hold on to. <laughs> right. <laughs> the saddle horn, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I went in there and, you know, um, it's sad when it's like when you haven't eaten proper nutrition in so long, right, and that you've been eating like potato chips and Mountain Dew as your diet for the last like 10 years and all of a sudden like you get this prison food, right, and everybody else is telling you how horrible it is and you're like, are you kidding me? This is fucking delicious. This is food. Give me that. Give me that. Give me that. I mean I, I – I just started eating everything I could and I gained like probably 45 pounds in a period of four months in jail. You know, <laughs> it was pretty quick and it wasn't fat. It was like body. Cause I was working out every day. You know, I started reading the Bible again and started like, you know, having like these doing prayer circles and stuff like that. And, um, and, and the How problem with you? that was, uh, so that at that, at that point I was 30, 36, okay. I was 35 or 36. I was 35. And, um, so here's the, here's where I, and I was like, you know what? I was like, I think I can do this thing. And I said to myself, I was like, you know what, when I get out of here, I want to go to rehab. That's exactly what I said. And, you know, a couple of people were like, well, if you're already cleaning here, you know, you ain't got to worry about rehab. I'm like, no, I think there's more that I need to know about this stuff. You know what I mean? And, um, so I got offered the 8507, which is like, like pretty much like drug court, but it's like, you know, you go to a rehab, you go to a rehabilitation facility for six months, men's long-term care. And, you know, uh, but the judge has to approve it. And the people like, you know, you might have to do your time, like 50% of your time, you know what I mean? And then you go, you know what I mean? So I was like, didn't do it to try to get out of jail. I did it because I just wanted to have a better life. Um, the problem was, is that I wanted that better life, not just for me, but mainly because I wanted, still wanted my ex in my life, or at the time she was my girlfriend. I wanted her in my life and I wanted us to just have a perfect life and this perfect fantasy life, you know what I mean? Where we were clean and we were living our life and doing the damn thing. Um, and so, you know, again, being a white kid, uh, white guy, uh, you know, skinny and, and, you know, not really trying to, you know, be affiliated with anything or anyone in jail. I wasn't getting on the phones, you know, nobody was letting me get on the phones, you know? Um, and, and, you know, that was probably a good thing, you know? Uh, so, so, uh, I get in the courtroom, you know, uh, and 
it's the old guy who had the patch over his eye and his wife and the director of security for Johns Hopkins and um, the, the Baltimore City Sheriff that was there that locked me up. And, uh, and the director of Hopkins wanted me to go to jail. She wanted me to do time for assault and all this shit. Like she was like trying to like drill me hard. You know what I mean? And, and I deserved it. I knew in my heart, I was like, I deserve it. I didn't contest any of it. I didn't say no. Well, this, that I didn't, I just, I just looked at, I was like, you're right. The only thing I wanted to do was, was apologize to those people for what I did, you know, cause I'm not a fucking piece of shit. I may have done piece of shit stuff, but I'm not a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, I don't, th- I don't think any of us are. I really no, don't. There's a big difference between survival mood and, you know what I mean? Like, because when you're in survival mood, anything that we did in our addiction, if we didn't do it in that time, we could have died or we could have been seriously injured. You know what I mean? Or right. hurt ourselves. Like, that's the way I look at it. You know, that's the way I can accept my past. That's the way I can sleep at night, you know, and know the things I've done. I mean, I made a ton of amends so far because I got I started my recovery April 25th, 2018. So right around wow. you, you know what I mean? So like I've been I've been going through, you know, there's still a lot of amends I haven't made yet because either I haven't gotten the chance or I'm not ready yet or they're not ready yet, you know, because there right. is them not being ready to that I have yeah. the same situation going on with me. Yeah. Yeah. So same like, situation. but I can't if I was to look back and dwell on all the shit I did, I would never sleep at night. You know what I mean? Oh. What, what we've God done, we've done. I can't. We can't change it. All we can do is continue to be a good person going forward and try to lead by example, principles over personalities, that kind of shit. Where people they want to, they want what we have. You know, I want that now, as opposed to before, where they wanted what I had because I had pills for them. You know, so exactly. you know. Now I just try to keep doing the right thing and hope that people are like, "Hey, what are you doing that I could? How do you do that? I, I never thought you'd be sober." I'd rather get that phone call than the phone calls like, yeah, you fucked up again. Because I got plenty of those phone calls from either family or friends or, you know, like, you know, I was, I embezzled 10 grand for my own company that I worked for my dad. Wow. You know, you know what I mean? And I paid him back out of my paycheck, you know, $500 at a time while still in addiction. And he still didn't raise questions to me, you know, and, but I still, I made that financial amends and everything, but like, I went to rehab and he was like, what do you need to go to rehab for weed? Cause he thought I was just smoking weed. And I'm like, right. no, I've been, I've been back on pills for like years, like every day, you know, he's like, Oh, okay. Like, see you later. Like he was just like, you know, what's he really going to say? I was the oldest kid only want to go to rehab, but you know, at least I did it once, you know, cause I was ready. They asked me to go in my twenties a lot and I just wasn't, I was like, listen, you're going to make me go, and when I come back, I'm going to relapse. It's going to be a waste of 30 grand. Like, I'm not right. ready. I'm not ready yet. <laughs> Simple as right. that. You know, what yeah. made you finally ready at 30, 38? Um, so, I mean, it. okay, so <laughs> I, had a, uh, I had an awakening, as they can say, um, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, again, when I was locked up, I thought I was knew what I was doing and went to rehab. I went to Gaudenzia um, for six months. Uh, and this is still when I'm 36 years old. I went to Gaudenzia and, um, you know, I, I thought I had everything together and everything ready and I'd worked on some stuff, but I was still just trying to get clean for someone else. I wasn't trying to get clean for me. I was trying to get clean for me and my ex, you know. 
and I wanted to be, you know, that patriarch, that one that broke the chain, right? And to be, to give her all the things I ever wanted to give her and to be able to make all these amends for all these things, right? And uh, when I got out, though, um, she was with someone else. And I didn't know. There was no closure. There was no, I don't want to be with you anymore. And guess there was one, one thing I knew that would give me that warm hug that I always knew would. And I ran right back to that bitch, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I didn't last long out there. It was like maybe like five or six days and I realized I needed more help. So I went to another recovery center and, uh, wasn't still, I was still boohooing and butthurt about it. You know what I mean? So I was only trying to get clean to show her that like, you know, be with me, be with me. It was, it was a back and forth battle for a while. Um, but until three years ago when I was 38, um, I had to accept the fact that she wasn't coming back and that I would never be able to love anybody if I wasn't able to love myself. Nobody would ever be able to love me if I couldn't love myself. But I didn't realize that at that moment until after this one situation I'm about to tell you happened. So I'm in a recovery center. And I'm sitting on the couch uh, on Saturday mornings, watching cartoons, eating a bowl of cereal, um, and what should have been a great day. And I just couldn't stop crying. Like I'd always cried in silence in the shower or under my covers or like under a pillow or when nobody else was in the room, you know, because I didn't want. I was brought up. You weren't. You were not allowed to cry. You were not, you, you do not cry. Don't cry in front of people. That's weakness. And I ain't raised no bitch. You know what I mean? That kind of shit. And that came from my mother. You know what I mean? Uh, so, um, you know, but I just couldn't, it just wouldn't contain anymore. It just would not, I couldn't control it and couldn't contain it anymore. And, uh, it was just what it was. I started crying and some guy came in the rehab center or the recovery house, the sober living house. And he said, uh, hey, be careful. If you know anybody that's using, don't go buy that shit around the corner that they're selling because like one pill or half a pill is killing people. And I had always been suicidal. You know, I'd always had severe depression and bipolar one and um, underlying health, mental health issues that I never addressed really, you know. Um, and uh, something inside of me told me to go get three of those pills and to go get a rig. And to go in a bando in a basement where nobody would find me and just go take myself out. And I didn't have any fear of it. You know, never been afraid to die. Never. Just been afraid to live. You know, it hurts mm -hmm. to live. You know, at the time it hurt to live. It just hurt. It just, <laughs> I didn't know my worth. I didn't know how, with the greatness that was inside of me. I didn't know like the great things that I was going to do in my life, you know, or that I, could even do these great things in my life, you know. Um, I'd always been haunted by my my guilt, shame, remorse, resentments, and all my insecurities and all my fears. They held me down like this giant weight on me, you know. And um, and I and I felt comfortable in that sad place for a long time. And I just at I just had a moment where I didn't want to live anymore, and I I went and did that, and I I OD'd, you know, I OD'd. Uh, and I'll give you the short version. I woke up in sub-level two in the morgue in Johns Hopkins. Uh, they had declared me dead at 6.17 in the afternoon on June 14th of 2018. And 
I was dead. I had to fight for eight months in the Hall of City or the Hall of Vital Records to get my name taken off my death certificate. That's crazy, right? Like that's how dead you were. Like you were like, yeah, like people were like, people were like, oh yeah, like I died and they brought me back, but you were like dead and about to go into like the refrigerator, like toe tag (laughs) and all. (laughs) Yeah, and like. And like the thing was, this is the crazy part of it with this is the crazy part about fentanyl. Right. And and what's been going on in our epidemic. So this happened so often. Right. That when I did wake up, the nurse who was zipping up the bag just looked at me and goes, oh, he's back and just unzip the bag. And and, and like it was like, you know, normally you'd figure she'd be like, oh, my God, it's a police game. He's alive. But no, they were just like, oh, he's back. And then they had another one. Got another one right. They hit this red button on the side of the wall, and the nurses from ICU came down and take me back up to ICU. Um, they put me on a ventilator, um, set a tube down my throat uh, to help me breathe. Um, I kind of went in and out of consciousness. Um, but during that during that time that I was gone, um, I did have a near-death experience. Um, I'm not going to call it God. I'm not going to call it angels. What? It, no, I'm not going to – I don't know exactly what it was, but I know what I saw and what I heard and what I felt. And um, instantly uh, in that NDE, I was uh, sitting on my mom's, my grandmother's floor in her bedroom, and I was young again. I remember looking down at my arms and my legs, and I was like five years old again. And I was like, what is going on? And like, I was like, the fuck is going on? And like the door opens up, and like it's my mom. Now, my mom had been, has been dead for like eight years. You know what I mean? And – you know, it was my mom in the doorway and she used to do this thing where she'd come up and she would, she would grab my face and she would look at me and she would kiss me on my head and tell me, she's like, it's going to be okay. I'm going to get us out of this one day. I promise you, mommy's going to get clean. And she grabbed my face and she kissed me on my head and she looked me dead in my eyes. And she's like, Sean, what are you doing? She's like, Sean, I love you, but I need you to love yourself. I need you to realize that you have so much inside of you and you're going to do things for people that you never even imagined. You're going to go places and talk to people that you would have never dreamed, but you need to get out of this nightmare first. And I woke up, I woke up and it was like, all of a sudden, like, I just, I just something like, I didn't have to ask. It's just something just clicked. Like I just knew all this, like all the answers. Cause honestly, let's be real. All the answers are already inside of us. Everything we already need to know is already deep in our heart. You just got to be willing enough to like dig down and kind of like hunt listen, for it, you know, listen and listen. That's yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. like I always say, like when I meditate, my subconscious is talking like that's I have to listen to it, though, because that's the problem is like I feel at least for me, I'm talking for me when I was in addiction, I was so like my ego gets so big. I'm just like. Anything my subconscious has to say was wrong. You know what I mean? Like, you got to stop doing this, JD. Shut the fuck up. You don't know what the hell you're talking about, man. I know that I got this. You know, like, you just keep telling it to shut up the entire time. Because it's screaming to stop. It's screaming, don't do that. It's screaming, you're a moron. Don't do that shit anymore. And, you know, I almost died. um, I, You know, I was in Pennsylvania, and I would drive to Jersey, you know, four or five times a week, about two hours each way to pick up pills. And the one time I'm driving on the turnpike, I took Xanax a lot, and um, I blacked out. While I, I, I was driving, I was like, oh, shit, I'm 30 miles from my exit. Okay, I'm almost in Philly. I'll be getting my pills soon. 
And then a minute later, I came to, and I was 30 miles past my exit, going 90 miles an hour in my wow. old in my old Crown Vic that I was driving. So like I'm driving this police cop car going 90 miles per hour, completely blacked out for like 60 miles, no recollection whatsoever of any. And then what did I do? I buy more Xanax. You know what I mean? As as I'm yelling right. at myself. Absolutely. Don't buy anymore. You almost just died. And I said, shut up. I'm not going to take it before I drive this time, idiot. Like, you know, <laughs> like, no, like that was my justification. Well, I won't do it before I drive just the 30s because the 30s helped me drive better. You know, that's right. stupid shit. <laughs> well, my my logic was and this was gross. I was just telling somebody earlier, like you get really good at catching your own vomit and swallowing it when you drive a lot while you're withdrawn. Like, you know, it's unfortunate, but like. I would, you know, get so close. And the closer I got to getting my pills, the more I would start withdrawing. You know, the closer I got, the more it would hurt. And I would be, like, in traffic, like, catching it and, like, swallowing it back down. This way I wouldn't make a mess all over my car. And this way I could keep just driving to get to my goal. You know, like, you know, some of the grossest shit. But, like, we were gross. (laughs) Let's be real. Like, the shit we were doing wasn't sanitary. You know, like. Exactly. And but we did it nonetheless because we thought we needed it, you know. And well, so that was June when you had that. Um, what happened over the next few months to where you were still on the fence, or did you have just like a momentary lapse? No, uh, no, I did not. Um, I knew, I knew that I needed to do something. Um, I knew, I knew that for the first time in my life, I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I, I, I had to. I took that mask off. That ego was gone. Um, you know, the, the lie was dead. You know, I didn't know what I was doing and I knew that I needed help. Sorry, I had to get out of the sun for a second. Um, and I knew that I needed, I knew that I needed some help. And, uh, you know, so I came to a realization that like, what can I do? You know? And, um, and so the one recovery center that I was at, I had always heard about this place. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I will just say their name only because this place saved my life. Uh, this place called Valley Bridge. Uh, and they're a very strict, strict program. I mean, it's very militant. Um, it, they don't take bullshit. They don't listen to rationalizations or justifications. They tell you exactly what you need to hear and not what the fuck you want to hear. They take that. They turn what I what we call um, what we call the bitch voice down and the get real voice up, you know, because we all have that. We all have that one voice in our head that says it's OK it's okay. You've been through a lot. It's just one more is okay. It's, they don't know what you've been through and, and I'm here for you. That's that bitch voice and that get real voices. So what you've been through some shit. Everybody's been through some shit. What are you going to do about it? You're going to sit there and cry about it like a little girl, or are you going to get up off your fucking ass for the first time in your life and be a real man and actually stand up for yourself and stand up for everything that you love? Because that's what it's about. And I'd never been talked to like that before. Remember, I came from a I, – I never had any men in my house. I never had any male – positive male role models that not only told me what I needed to hear but cared about me and was there to willing to help me not – they'll let me fall, but they'll also be there to help pick me up. Yeah. But they're also going to show me how to not fall. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it was an amazing, amazing adventure. But what happened was I went – so I, I go to this program, right, and this isn't a place you get referred to. You have to go and ask the director himself if you qualify to get in there, all right? And he had seen me for a while. His name is Mr. Tony, um, and this guy is a saint, all right? Um, and so I went to him, and I said, Mr. Tony, I need help. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. 
um, and tears in my eyes. I said, I, you know, I just overdosed yesterday. Um, they let me out, um, but I'm scared and I don't know what I'm doing. I know I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. And he looked at me, he was like, well, you know, you got to go to detox, right? Because we don't do detox here. He's like, this is a program where people are actually trying to get clean, not where people are trying to fucking still, you know, do the dumb shit. And I was like, okay. So he goes, I'm going to send you to Turk house. He sent me to a place called Turk house. And he sent, uh, he's he, another guy that works at, at the bridge house, uh, voluntarily, by the way, because most of these people that come in there are alumni and they volunteer to come in their time to help with guys that are in there that are new. That's, that's the hard about giving back. You know what yeah. I mean? Which is huge in our program or well in the program I was in and I'm still, I'm alumni now. So like I do the same thing. I go back on Saturdays and I go help out no matter what's going on. We go and we do community work. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, you know, cause you got to give it away to keep that shit. Just be real. And, um, so, uh, this guy named Sykes, and I hated this guy Sykes. He was arrogant. He was prideful. He like he like was always doing the right thing. He was everything I wanted to be, but like I was too scared to be. He didn't care what people thought about him. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I I fucking hated this guy. But this guy came in every day while I was laying in that boat, throwing up and shitting and pissing on myself, and and praying to a god I hope existed to get me out of that pain. And he came by, he made, made it a point to every morning, come by and ask me how I was doing, if I needed anything. And then every night he would, he would come by and he would pray with me. You know what I mean? And, you know, the only thing in Turk house that, that, that helped alleviate any of the pain was that hot shower beating on your back. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so I, I, I did that and, and I went through that and I was, when I came out, I was gung ho and I was ready. I get to Valley bridge and I learned a lot there, man. I learned about how to really accept shit because they do the psychoanalytical side, you know, of recovery, like, let's, yeah. like, like breaking down yeah. your cognitive, like, and I've always been interested in psychology, you know, that was my thing. So my counselor there, miss, uh, can I say her name? Uh, yeah. I won't say her name. Okay, Miss Monica. Uh, she's amazing. She's she's that that woman. Cool, like <laughs> you know what I mean. Like those people that are in your life that just like wow. when you think about them, you're just like, thank you God for putting that person in my life. Like I don't know what I would have done without her. Uh, she was one of those people. She taught me, you don't have to pick up everybody's trash, and you're more than what you think you are. At every turn, I don't care how great you think you are. There is more greatness deep down inside of you. You just got to dig for it. You know, I learned from all the people there about acceptance, you know, accepting the fact that I can't control shit that goes on around me. I can't control any of the situations. A guy could run up right now with a gun in his hand and put it in my head and say, give me all your money. And I can't do anything about that. You know, if somebody leaves and my girlfriend leaves me, I can't do shit about that. I could try to persuade her not to, but if she wants to go, she wants to go. I can't control people. I can't control places. I can't control things or situations. Half the time, I can't even control my own fucking emotions. You know what I mean? Or, or you're, the, you, and you definitely can't control your first thought. You can control oh, what you first, do with your. You can control what you do with your first thought, like not act it out, or you know, sit with it, or like sometimes I'm like, that was a weird one. You know what I mean? Because oh, everyone, yeah. but you can't control that first thought. People have like the only thing you can control is your behaviors. You yeah. can create. You can control your behaviors and your circumstances and your consequences. That's it. So the best way to be able to control your behaviors is to try to control your thoughts. 
And what you do by that is, and because when I was in the beginning of recovery, my first thought is always wrong because my first thought wants me to run. It wants me to use that fight or flight method and go towards the thing that is going to give me comfort the most and run from that pain, whether it be emotional, physical, mental, or spiritual, it's going to have me run. So what do I do with it? So I need to build a network. And so the way that I learned to build a network, and this might sound a little different. I don't know if you've ever heard this way before, but when I built my network, I built my, my network knowing that I was at war, right? So let's, let's get one thing straight. I'm at war every day, right? I'm battling every day inside here, right? This is where the war zone is, right? So, so if I'm in a war, right, and this is my kingdom, right, what protects – a kingdom and what fights in a war an army you need a fucking army you need an army you need marines navy seals you need you need technicians you need doctors you need everything you need the whole thing an army has to offer so i use my psychiatrist i use my therapist i use my relationship therapist i use my family therapist i use my sponsor i use my sponsee brothers i use my network i use my social media network i use my friend, I have pot, what I call positive influencing friends, people that, that are in, in my life that are positive influencers that only want the best for me and challenge me every day to be the best that I can be. I'm in, I, you know, you know that I do the motivational speaking. So I've always been, I've always been fascinated with motivational speakers, Les Brown, David Goggins, Earl Nightingale. I mean, these guys are, are, are guys that really have honed in and, and, and learned uh, to take that pain and take that, turn that pain into power. But not only turn that pain into power, but turn that power into purpose. You know what I mean? Because if I look at everything in my life as negative, like I always did, I'm always going to get the same result of my consequences, right? So to change my thoughts, I have to change my perception of things. I got to be able to learn how to turn every negative into a positive. And people need to to be reminded that we do have the choice to choose the positive over the negative. You know, we have that choice. You know, that is something that happiness you know in general is a choice you have the choice to wake up and see that it's raining and go oh shit my day is screwed it's raining and then you get out of bed with that attitude you're carrying that with you but you wake up and you see it's raining you're like oh cool it's going to cool down a little bit today the plants are going to get watered now the traffic's going to suck but i can take my time going to work so i'll have an excuse it'll be a good day you carry that with you you that happiness is not a feeling happiness is a choice that you can have. And when you're already choosing to be happy, that perspective is going to be a positive perspective when you see things. And you're not going to go straight to the negative. And if you do go to the negative first, think for a second and find the positive because that's just straight science that with every positive, there's a negative too. With every negative, there's a positive. Just look for it. It's there. Even in death, you know, like my first fiance committed suicide and it's a damn shame and I miss her every day. But guess what? She's not in pain anymore. Her schizophrenia isn't driving her insane anymore. She doesn't have to drink until the voices go away anymore. You know, these are all things that I can find solace in to know that when she's not here, at least she's not in pain. You know, and you right. can do that with anything that you want to where you can, oh, shit, that's as horrible as it can be. And then I challenge people all the time at meetings. Give me something negative. I'll, I'll, I'll switch it for you. I'll switch it. And they do. And I switch them. You know, I give them where the positive side is. You just need to open up your mind enough to accept what the positives are because we're already taking all the negatives anyway. Why not? And that's where that spiritual principle of open-mindedness comes in. You know, I mean, I don't just 
you know, you and you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, you can't because recovery is more than just about, you know, like you said earlier, it's not just about the drugs and alcohol. The drugs and alcohol were just fuel that were on top of a fire that was already burning. You know, yeah. this fire had been burning for years. We never even knew when the fire started. It doesn't matter. What, we, what matters is, is that now we got the gasoline off. Now we can start to identify where the fire is coming originated. from. Originated. You know? where, where, yeah, where did it come from? Why did I start? Where did that fire begin? Did it blow up to it and golfing in flames where I couldn't even see what the problem was anymore because the fire became the problem, not the origination. Exactly. And if you spend your time trying to put out just the flames, just the flames and not the actual thing that's burning, then it's always going to be flames. You're just going to be it's a never ending fight and you're going to drive yourself insane. And eventually it's biology, bro. If you keep doing that and you burn out, you're going to get overwhelmed and you're just going to fall again. It's biology. I don't care. You can be Superman. Even Superman fell. You know, I mean, but but the thing is, it's like. You got to get to that root core. And that's where like, that's where my army comes in. My army comes in because like there are days where like, I'm not, I'm not the strongest soldier on the field. You know, you I said can't. something um, on one of your TikToks. Um, what, what's your TikTok, by the way? Um, recovery Radio 1? Is that what yes. it is? So it's, it's uh, Recovery Radio 1, uh, Recovery underscore Radio underscore 1. And um, so what I focus mainly on is uh, real talk and recovery and motivation and inspiration you know you said something uh that caught my attention about tools the other day about picking up a hammer i like that a lot you want to talk about that yeah so um so you know all these different aspects of recovery um and, and and again i don't care if you're just recovering from drugs and alcohol a food addiction sex addiction anger being a workaholic, anything that makes your life unmanageable or you become powerless over and that has really caused horrible consequences to you or is causing detrimental consequences to you that's fucking with you. You know, uh, there's there's aspects of recovery. There are different venues to get help, you know, and it doesn't have to just be NA or CDA or Celebrate Recovery. It could be anything. You can, I don't care. Like I said before, I don't care if you get your recovery from a doorknob, right? But whatever tools that are put down in front of you to use, right, to put in your tool belt, like say you're in treatment, right, and they give you all these things about acceptance and surrender and, and things, and coping skills and mechanisms. These are these are all tools, right? Um, whatever your therapist says, whatever these people say, these are tools, but they only work if you use them, all right? If I have a chainsaw on the ground, okay? I could have the most expensive chainsaw. It could be the most awesomest competition tournament style chainsaw in the world. All right. And, and if I have a tree right next to it, guess what? It is not going to cut down that fucking tree until I pick that tool up and use it. No matter how fancy and shiny and amazing it looks and how much I polish it until I pick it up and use it, it's not going to work. I could talk about that chainsaw all day, tell you how amazing the chainsaw is but it's still not going to cut down the tree until you use it. And that's the same thing with the tools in recovery, you know, step work or therapy or sharing, listening, you know, coping skills, you know, all these different tools that they give us. I mean, they're out there, you know, and, 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 you know, I had to learn a long time ago that I can't wait around. All right. For, to, for someone to tell me what I need in my recovery, I got to search for that shit. So there's times you, you, everybody that knows me will tell you, I'll be online Googling new ways of recovery. You know, um, you know, I, I, 
um, I just did a talk, um, you know, the other day. Um, I wanted to know about different ways people have recovered, you know, all different ways that they've recovered, you know, and it's amazing. If you look at my comments, like there's people from all over the world that have said different ways that they've recovered, whether it be maintenance or whether it be therapy or whether it be family bonding or whether it be spirituality. I mean, there's so many different modalities of recovery out there. It's like, why would you limit yourself to just one? You know, not only that, like you can use different recoveries, not specifically for different things. Like I went to AA, even though like I am an alcoholic and identify as one alcohol death and led me to pills, but my life didn't become unmanageable until pills, but still I like AA better. And, but on top of that, like I, you mentioned the sex addict, I had um, a sex addict on a couple months ago and he was recovering from a porn addiction and he almost lost his family. And the behaviors were all the same. Like his wife shut down the, you know, internet. So he's stealing money from his restaurant. He's working at to buy porn. You know, this yeah. was like, you know, five years ago. And he still felt like he had to buy porn just because he was that hard up. And, but he went to AA meetings. He went to CA meetings, Cocaine Anonymous, because there wasn't <laughs> enough sex and love meetings for him. So he was going to AA meetings. He was going to CA. And he's like, I related to every single person that talked. Maybe we look Absolutely. different because my life, you know, porn didn't make my, you know, my body look, you know, bad like drugs and alcohol do. But like I related to all the behaviors and and all the thought processes and the lying and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Sneaking around, and, the sneaking yeah. around the line, the manipulation, all of it. It's oh, all man. the same. The, the manipulation. The, <laughs> the manipulation is, is a big one. Huge was, manipulation. It was a big on my step six. It was a big <laughs> one for me where I had a couple talks with my therapist and um, with my sponsor about me not wanting to drop my manipulation. Cause like I'm a salesman. Right, you felt like that. Yeah, exactly. Same here. Like I, I feel as though they don't get, there are certain aspects of my, I felt for a long time, there are certain aspects of my addiction that actually can still be used, but in a positive manner. But I really, I had to drop a lot of that. I mean, there's some things like my drive and my motivation and my, my intelligence and my quick thinking. That's one thing. But when it comes to like manipulating situations, working the fence, you know, that type shit, I had to give all that up because really at the end of the day, I do my daily inventory. I do my step 10. And yeah. I'm still, and I'm like, what the fuck, bro? Like, ugh, like I'm still a piece of shit. Yeah, I you was, know, so. I was told, um, as long as I am not self-serving, if I'm manipulating somebody that's going to only help them and not help me, then that would be more okay. Like, if I'm manipulating somebody to get help, if I'm manipulating somebody in order to do something in recovery, it's going to benefit them, but in no way benefit me. Then they would see that as a different way. It's not even manipulating. That's just being strategic in how you're talking. And right. choosing choosing your words wisely, but you could at least feel like you were manipulating like you used to. I was right. like, man, I'm, I'm a set like I literally I was worked in sales my entire life, you know. Mm -hmm. So like all my 20s, like I had a job all through my addiction. You know, that's what kept me going for so long was I was always working, you know, and when you're working, you can fool everybody, even yourself. Yeah, you I, know, know? I was a bartender. I was a bartender the whole time. So like I. I literally did the same thing. Um, and then even the last, like, uh, like I'd say six years, five years, that was re really bad in my addiction, like my active addiction. Um, I, I was, I, I had a con, remember I was telling you earlier, I had a con and hustles that I used to do. Um, I wasn't going to get too deep into it, but, um, and I'm not proud of this, but I, I created a fake fundraiser uh, that I would go around. I had a, I had a jacket, a hospital, a student hos uh, medical jacket, 
that I wore with a lanyard and I had a clipboard that I'd walk around and I would go into different businesses and I would tell people that I was collecting money for a cancer organization that didn't exist, for kids that were sick that didn't exist. And at the time, I thought that was awesome. You know, I thought that that was something slick. And, you know, when I think back on it, it was horrible. And when I was able to drop those, you know, not, well, I dropped that a long time ago, but when I, like when I got to step, step six and I had to drop my manipulations and all my lies and all my cunningness, um, and all the slick shit, you know, after about a year of really like focusing on like not manipulating anymore, you start to be able to notice more manipulation that goes on around you. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about, right? Like you'll yeah. start seeing you'll go to meetings and like you'll start like uh you'll start seeing you'll start not seeing like focusing on but you'll observe like new girls come in, right? And then the guys that sit around them, the 13th steppers as we call oh them. Oh my god. Yeah, those, I know them. Those, I those always pieces thought. of shit like yeah. yeah, those pieces of garbino, you know, and it's like, you know, then you start like and, and you're able to like and then when you're able to drop that stuff, right. And you become more open-minded and then you're able to be to a point where when somebody tells you, Hey, this doesn't, this isn't cool. You know what I mean? Like, um, for instance, you know, Chrissy from life after addiction, right? Yeah. She'll be on Friday. She's, she's a rock star, dude. That girl, she's awesome. So I, um, I got to hold myself accountable about something about like, uh, what was it about maybe seven or eight months ago? Um, I was, I was on, uh, I was on the site and so I had, you know, one of the, I guess one of the girls had like commented to me. Right. And, and so I like commented back and then like, she like the girl, like I am to me and then I am, I, I, I am, I inboxed her and then it kind of got to flirting a little bit. You know what I mean? And then like, so like Chrissy jumped straight in my shit. She came to me. She was like, Hey, she was like, not cool, bro. She was like, she's like, that's not what we're here for. Da, da, da. And then Matt Weber, another great friend of mine, uh, came in and held me accountable too. And I was like, holy shit. And I didn't even look at it like that. Like I was not trying to be like, like freaky or weird or anything like that. But I thought about it. I was like, holy shit, bro. Like I could have just fucked with somebody's recovery. Like that's crazy. And those are the type of friends we need in life. You know, the yeah. ones that tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. You know what I mean? And that's like, that's we where that's it. We called it not co-signing your bullshit. That's what exactly. we said, like in rehab, like, hey, I'm not going to co-sign your bullshit. Like, that's right. like the term my friends in recovery and I use with each other is like, I'm not co-signing that, bro. Like, exactly. Yeah. And, exactly. you know, <laughs> we saw it all, and especially early in recovery, you see it often because then you're still trying to get rid of the behaviors because all yeah. the behaviors are still there. Just the drugs aren't. And yeah. like you said, like it takes it takes a lot of like self-reflection and therapy, like I was like you, I dove head first into therapy. Like I had like three different therapists and one I talked to about one thing, like one was all relationships. I was like, yeah. I don't know how to be in a relationship. I've had one serious girlfriend. We were That's... best friends since kids and she committed suicide. I need help with this so I don't have that happen again. And she's like, all right, I got you. You know, cause that was my second love. My first love was pills. We established that. My second right. love was Colleen. That was my childhood best friend. And then my third love is my wife now. You know, and right. my, I wouldn't be any good to my wife now like I was back then. That's for yep. damn sure. And yeah. I need, we met, we, we met at like 340 days sober, you know, and I was like, I can't get serious, you know, 
and we met on Tinder, so we weren't going to get serious anyway right away. But <laughs> let's be real. But I was like, it was like, I need some time. Like, I need at least a year sober, like straight up early on before we can get serious. She's like, yeah, that's fine. And then, like, you know, we were serious, but without any titles. Like, we were really happy. But when I came back from L.A. with my one year, I proposed. I was like, all right, we're going to go from dating to just <laughs> being engaged. So we've right. been together ever since, you know. But I needed that year. I needed yeah. that full year of me and concentrating only on me, as selfish as it sounds. But we need that. No, no, not at all. And, <laughs> and you know, the greatest thing, the greatest thing, I think one of the most beautiful things about this, right, is that I can honestly sit back and and look back on my life and look back on my addiction and say, I'm glad I had an addiction. I'm glad I had the life I had because if not, I would have never found recovery. And if I would have never found recovery, I would have never been able to be a father to my son. I would have never been able to be a father to my stepchildren. I would have never been able to be a husband to my wife. And not only just a husband or a father, but a good one. Like one that knows boundaries, one that knows and how, how, to, how to not put expectations on people, but to be able to challenge people, to be compassionate, to be empathetic, to be understanding, to learn how to listen, to be able to communicate. Communication is huge with people. That's the biggest part of relationships. If you can't, if you can't, if, if I can't call my, my, my wife and say, Thelma, you know, uh, you know, I, I kind of don't really like the situation that happened last night. It, you know, really got under my skin. And here's why. Here's how I feel about it. And it, it brings up these feelings and it brings up some old stuff from back in the day. And maybe I need to work on this. Maybe this is the universe telling or God telling me I need to work on this. Um, or maybe it's just saying that we maybe need to readjust our boundaries, you know. And, and, and then instead of me saying, you know, you know you're a cheater or you're, you know, this or you're that, which sometimes, you know, I'm not saying the cheater part, but like, sometimes I'll be, I'll be accusational. I'm not going to say I'm perfect. I'm no Buddha. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm nothing like what I was in my twenties or my thirties, you know, and I'm definitely nothing like what I was when I was in addiction and like, you know, I'm able to communicate. And, and another thing is, is that in recovery, I've learned how to say, I'm sorry. And that I was wrong, you know, and hold yeah. myself accountable because, you know, as an addict, I don't know about you, but for me, my favorite thing was rationalizing everything I did. Everything. Oh, I, and I had so many excuses for everything that made it okay. Like, yep. And I, I, I was going to talk to I was blue in the face to prove that I was not wrong. And you need to listen to me. I'm right. And right. I had to, that was the first thing I had to squash. I loved hearing how right I was all the time. You know, I still, you know. It, it doesn't bother me when, when someone tells me you were right. You know, nowadays it still doesn't bother me, but I was like pushing for it then. I right. had I had to be right. And if I wasn't right, it's on me and I'm going to take it out on myself. I'll show you who's right. You know, it's one of those I'll show you. And I read about it. Um, Like what was uh, do you read just for today? Absolutely. So today's is about rebellion and being rebellious right. and like. You know, I was always punishing myself over my own thoughts because like, oh, yeah, you think I'll do that? Well, watch what I do now, you know, and right. just and just all I knew is hurt myself more. It was never yeah, productive. And like, <laughs> yeah. And I was talking I was talking to uh, I was talking to somebody in my network today when we did the just for today this morning. And I was like, you know, those moments where like, you know, you're fucking wrong. 
and you and that that point in the conversation where you just realize fuck I'm wrong but you still fuck it I'm going to fucking run with this bitch I'm going to run with this knife until I stab myself and and it always it's like why can't I just now I, I work really hard sometimes I'm not always perfect but I work really hard I'll stop in the middle of the conversation and be like shit you you're right and I'm not just saying that to appease you. I just realized I'm an idiot sometimes, and I just jumped the gun. My bad. Like, or like I'll say, and and another thing I I had to learn how to say was I don't know. That's because I'm the same way. I'm a smart guy. I'm highly intelligent, high IQ, and all that stuff. That means nothing in the recovery world, though. By the way, um, most that, of us that are just, most most of us have that in the recovery world. Most of us oh. are intelligent, and we're almost too smart for our own good sometimes. Yeah. You know what I we, mean? Like I've been told, I've been told to dumb it down a few times. Yes. I mean, even Keep my grandmother would, my grandmother would say to me, "You're too smart for your own good. You can't get out of your own way." You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was the truth. I couldn't get out of my own way because my own brain would stop me from doing whatever I needed to do because I would try to rationalize something else. It's almost, yeah. But once I knew what I needed to do, you know, I've been on the right track. Once I've been actually listening to myself and not like having my brain do the work or my subconscious do the work, you know, because my brain was broken. My subconscious was giving me the right information the whole entire time. And it was my dumb thinking that just kept saying, shut up. You don't know shit. I got this. You know, I got this. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. All right. I call it I call it the scientist in my brain. He always wants to figure shit out before he does anything. He always wants to analyze everything and like run down every scenario first. And I don't I've done so many times in my life where like I have something so simple right in front of me, but I go, that's too easy. There's something behind this. There's gotta be more to this. Like yeah. and I'll wind up not even doing it, you know, just to because I because it. I'm yep. trying to overanalyze. Right. You know, sometimes I just got to keep it simple, stupid, and keep moving forward and do what I got to do. And if it's wrong, okay, learn from it. I got to stop. And and that's only because I was afraid to make mistakes, you know. But I, I learned, see, um, one of the things that uh, David Goggins teaches is, and Les Brown teaches, is to fail and fail often. Because you don't grow from always being at the top, you know, uh, I heard this phrase a long time ago, and it's the most beautiful phrase I've ever seen. I know you, I've know you've seen the post before. It says, "Rock bottoms will teach you lessons that mountaintops could never." You know, and it's the truth. You know, sometimes you have to fall, and I'm not talking about using again. I'm talking about just like those small things that we make mistakes in, and be able to observe that mistake and say, "Okay, how can I learn from this?" Now it's a lesson. You know, it's a blessing or a lesson. That's it. You know, and, and that's that's how I pick myself up. That's how I that's how I, I try to look at it. And that goes back to that thinking and making turn it into a positive, you know, at the very at the very best and very least, I could turn it into a learning experience. That's yeah. all we're that's all it is. Yeah, and I I definitely agree because that I mean, if you're not learning from anything and you're not trying to continue to grow, you're going to get stagnant, even in recovery. If you think that you have it, you don't. When you think you, just you have it, it, you lost it. Yeah, man. You just lost yeah, it. Right? I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I appreciate you coming on, dude, and talking. You know, I've been wanting to talk for a little bit now, so I appreciate it, dude. JD, I, I thanks for thanks for having me on, man. Uh, it's amazing, man. I, I appreciate what you do out here. Uh, you're a rock star, man, and um, I'm just I'm just happy to be part of the, part of the crowd. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be tagging the shit out of you, man, when I post this. So don't worry, I'll be I'll be letting you know.
All Got right. you, bro. Thanks, man. And thanks for yeah. your support, too. All right. No problem. I'll talk to you, man. All right, brother. Bye. All right. See you.